This is episode 544 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In 1974, Billy Preston, who was affectionately known as the Fifth Beatle, had one of his major hits with the song Nothing From Nothing, which reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for one week in October of that year. And there's not much substance to the lyric of his song, just a catchy phrase and an upbeat melody, but the overriding message of the title still rings true today. If you put nothing in, you'll get nothing out. There is no free ride, no free lunch. Success doesn't just happen. It's the result of hard work. And nothing is ever truly free. It always costs someone something. Same is true in our spiritual lives. Even the free gift of salvation costs Christ his life. Jesus said we must deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily in order to follow him. That sounds like it cost us something. Likewise, in the wilderness where God provided manna to feed his children for 40 years, God still required them to get off their backsides and go out each morning and pick it up. God did not employ DoorDash to foster their laziness. Today, we're going to look at Proverbs 13, 4, which reads, The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Don't get confused with the word rich. This passage does not refer to money exclusively. It also refers to our relationship with him and the effort we are willing to make to grow in our faith. After all, we put nothing in, we can expect nothing out. We don't show up for the game, we don't play. It's just that simple, and it's no one's fault but our own. So join us today, and let's discover the importance of putting in the effort spiritually to grow our faith as we learn to leave Laodicea behind. So I had Sunday's message prepared. I was uh, doctoring up a little bit, adding a few things to it, stuff we did not finish last week. And as I was doing that all during the week and kind of piecemeal effort, I felt distant. I felt disconnected. I felt like it wasn't something I was supposed to do. Okay, well, Lord, if that's not what you want me to share, then what do you want me to share? And he revealed to me nothing. Nothing. It wasn't like, no, I need you to preach on this or preach on that or something of that. Okay, then what do I need? Well, I need to connect with you. I need an experience with you. I need to just sit down and pray and study, not for Tuesday night or for you know uh, the kids on Wednesday or for this on Sunday or for writing a blog or doing a podcast or working on a book. What I need is I need just to read your word just for me, just for the joy of it. And sometimes as a pastor, since there's so much demand going on for teaching, sometimes we have a tendency, I have a tendency of of letting that slide. And I had for a while. And so, okay, all right. So Lord, uh, what do you want me to do? What verse do you want me to look at? Tell me, tell me what you want to have happen. And so I just turned to, um, this happened yesterday, by the way, yesterday morning. So I just turned to Proverbs 13, since yesterday was the 13th, and I began reading passages. I wish I could show you my Bible. It is this particular chapter. It's all doctored up and just notes everywhere. I probably preached on this and studied this 20 times. In my Bible, whenever 
God speaks to me about something, I'll make a, write a prayer or I'll date it or make a little note or a little notation about what that was about. So when I go back and I, I look at it, I can see that, oh, God was dealing with me here. And just looking at some of the dates of the notations I have here, I've got questions that I've asked over here. I've got uh, July, it was July 13th. Uh, 2019. I have a prayer request to him there. I've got one on uh, July uh, or on uh, the 13th of uh, August in 2013. Here is 1314. There's a comment, another one from uh, October 13th, 1917. And and so I, um, 2017, not 1917. Sorry about that. That'd be a long time ago. It came out of my mouth. I thought, that doesn't sound right. Usually I don't catch that. And Karen goes, 2017. Thank you. Thank you. But anyway, so let's have that kind of time. Go ahead, just speak to me about this. So I just began reading. Same stuff I have always read. Chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son heeds his father instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. Okay, and in my Bible, I've got the words that are defined there, and I've got, for example, rebuke in verse number one, and a line drawn all the way down to verse number eight, where it's connected there. And and as I've just gone through this Bible study, all right, that's verse one. Verse two, a man shall eat well by the fruits of his mouth. And I have a little notation that says what he says and what he speaks. But the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. Okay. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. So I have a notation in verse number two of mouth, and I draw that down to verse number three of mouth, and then open wide, talking about his mouth. And now that's interesting and kind of cool. And then I get to verse number four. And it's the verse, of course, that deals with finances. That's how we always kind of read this on the surface. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made, and here's that word that makes us think it always has to do about money, rich, rich. When we think about rich, it's riches, riches. Well, what are riches? Riches are gold and silver and platinum and Bitcoin and cash and and riches. It's money. So it says the soul of a lazy man, a bum, somebody who didn't do anything, a homeless person, desires and gets nothing because he's not working like the rest of us. But he who opened, but the soul of the diligent, whatever that word means, shall be made rich. Wow, 20th century American culture. I've interpreted that as an entrepreneur, as a, someone who lives in opulence. And it means that if I work really hard, I'll have a lot of money. If I work really hard, I can eat, drink, and be married and say to my soul after I build all my barns and put all my stuff in it, soul, you have no need of anything. Of course, Jesus called that man a fool. And so we interpret it culturally because of the English language. And because it says rich, that's obviously what it means, rich. And then I stopped. I mean, I was just going to blow past this verse because we know what it means. We know how to interpret it. It's about money. No, it's not about money at all. Man, it doesn't have anything to do with money. Money is a byproduct of that. Well, what is it? What do the words mean? I mean, I need to define this. I need to understand. And this is a verse that I would have never stopped on. I'd never spent time studying. I never, ever expected God to speak to me through this passage. And so I began to define some of the words. I've shared with you over and over and over again how to do that. You must do that in in-depth Bible study. You must. 
There's tons of English translations, and the English translations interpret stuff differently. You have two sets of Greek source documents. One, of course, the received text, and one, of, of course, is kind of a perverted text. Most of the are corrupted text. Most of the newer translations now are based on the corrupted text from a translation by Westcott and Horton. I've explained all that to you in great detail. And so when you're reading something, it's always good to kind of understand what that word meant when it was written, not what it means today. And I shared that with you last week about how English language changes. I used to use the example of the word gay, but now there's a better example, the word woke. True? When you say woke today, how are you feeling? Woke. Okay, what is that, crazy? That means you, what, you believe men can have babies? I mean, well, what does that mean right now? No, it means I'm not asleep. Well, no, we don't interpret it that way anymore because things change in the English. So it's really easy going online. You can do it all online and figure it out exactly what it means. If you're dealing with the New Testament, I gave you a huge book that you can just look those words up after you figure out what the Strong's Numbers is. It's not that hard. Or you could actually invest oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this, invest and spend money on your spiritual life that the church doesn't do today because we all expect everything Christian to be free. You ever noticed? Everything. We'll spend $200 for a stupid textbook in order to get a degree we're not going to use because they told us we had to. But when it comes to buying software or something to help us in our spiritual life, we expect everything to be free. It doesn't work that way. You could have a subscription to Logos Bible Software. It makes it so much easier to study this stuff. And so I just did in the Hebrew what you could do. And how long did it take? Me? Half hour. You? I don't know, two hours. But it was incredible incredible to figure out exactly what these words meant. And what I did is I took every concordance, every uh, Hebrew-English dictionary that I had, which is about 20 of them, I lined them all up in logos, just looked at them one at a time. It's not like you have to stack books on your desk. And to get an overall view of exactly what the Lord is saying here to the people in the culture he wrote to. And here's what he says, the soul, and I've got it on your handout. I have the, uh, the Hebrew word there if you want to look it up yourself. The soul, but pretty much soul in Hebrew means the same thing it means in Greek. It's the inner being. It's who you are with your thoughts and emotions. It literally means breath. It's the entire person. It's the seat of your personality, which means your mind, your will, your passion, your volition how you think, how you feel, what you decide to do. It's everything that makes you who you are. You know, you are a body or you are a spirit who has a soul who lives in a body. When we pass away, uh, we leave our body behind and our soul, which is creating our spirit, which is creating the image of God, goes to be with the Lord. But it's our personality that makes Tim different than Debbie. It's your personality that makes Karen different from me. She views things her way. I view things my way. We, she laughs at certain things. Now, let me rephrase that. I try to show her things I think are hilarious. She doesn't get it. True. And, you know, it's just, it's our personality. It's, we're just totally different. 
So the soul, the inner part of who I am, how I think, how I function, my will, my mind, my passion, my volition. And in this word, we have the soul used, or in this passage, we have the soul used twice. It's a contrast. We have the soul of a lazy man and the soul of someone who's diligent. And what the lazy man can expect something, and the one who's diligent can expect something else. And what divides those two phrases is the conjunction or the contrast word, but. But. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Shall be made. That's like something that almost happens to them. Rich. The soul of a lazy man, I've had one on your handout, one who's sluggish, slothful, useless, someone who will always fail because of laziness that ends up becoming a moral failure, a person who is undisciplined to work or exert himself. We know this is true in the physical world. And I ain't hiring a lazy person. As a matter of fact, you'll just go through the Proverbs and look at the word lazy. You'll find there's about eight different verses that deal with being lazy. And it talks about how terrible they are and they shouldn't expect anything. And God gives them this like this hedge of thorns around them to discipline them. And, and it's better for you to, you know, sending a message with a lazy man is akin to something else. I mean, it's, there's a lot said in here. And so we read this fleshly, and we go, of course, I'm not going to hire a lazy man. I'm not going to hire a homeless guy. I'm not going to hire a bum. I want to hire someone who's going to work really hard. That's not going to be entitled because that's, that's what a lazy person is. They're sluggish. They don't get out of bed until noon on their days off. I remember, I remember when I was in college taking accounting courses, I was taking this business class, and this guy was, this, this particular guy that was teaching his business class actually taught part-time and he worked in business. So I kind of valued what he said. And he said, when you're hiring an employee, here's the most important question to ask them. Tell me about your Saturday mornings. What do you do on Saturday morning? Oh, phew, Saturday morning. I sleep till like 11, you know, because I stayed up late on Friday and I'm not interested, not interested. Boom, you're out of here. You're really a sluggish person. What do you do on Saturday morning? Man, I'm up at dawn. Saturday, I got so much stuff to do. I'm building this barn in the back. I got to play with my kids. I got ball games I got to go to. I got to mow my lawn. I got all this kind of stuff that I need to do that I couldn't do during the week. And so my Saturday is just as busy, just as industrious as the rest of my week was. That's the person that you want to hire. But sluggishness, slothfulness, being useless, someone who will always fail because they never put the effort in, and that failure will then lead to a moral failure, lets me know that uh, this is dealing with far more than just the physical world. This slothfulness and laziness also has to do with your spiritual life. Someone who claims that they want to have a deep relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but is slothful, and lazy, and always fails in that, it leads to a moral failure because they don't want to put the time in, desires, yet has nothing. A soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. What does the word desire mean? Well, it means to want strongly, to long for, to crave. Well, that's a, that's a powerful word. 
I'm, I, I crave something. I desire it so strongly. I want it more than anything, and yet I refuse to put any effort in because it's just words. It's just talk. It means nothing. And so, therefore, all my longing, all my desire, all my claiming to want to be something I'm not, with no effort put, put behind it, it says that I will have nothing. I will end up being nothing. I will not have my desire fulfilled. And the word nothing, again, if you look at it, means <laughs> none, no, not, nothing, zilch, nada. It ain't going to happen. It means, it means the non-existence. There is nothing there. And I was reading one of the commentaries from the 1800s who says about this person, he hates the process by which results are to be obtained. In other words, I, I, I want to play on a football team, but I refuse to go to practice. I refuse to do the exercises. I refuse to learn the plays because I'm too lazy. I can't get out of bed. I don't care. I don't want anything to cost me anything. I just want to be entitled spiritually, and so it doesn't happen. I'm can't even, I don't even know if I'm on offense or defense. I don't even know what position I'm playing. We lose every single game, and I can't figure out why. It's very simple. It's a biblical prophecy. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But, contrast, but the soul, and we already understand we're dealing with apples and apples here. Soul of one man, soul of another. The heart of one man, the heart of another. The soul of the diligent, the diligent. That's another amazing word. You can even look it up. Uh, look how many times it's used in the Old Testament. Same word translated in Septuagint is the word that talks about the fact that, we, that, that, you know, that God honors those people and is a rewarder of those people who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11.5. Do you remember? The word diligent means sharp industrious, a person who is characterized by care and perseverance in carrying out tasks. In other words, someone who's diligent is not satisfied with dreaming, not satisfied with words only, not satisfied with desire, but with possessing what I'm going after. A, um, a lazy person is the one that sits at home and uh, well, I'll give you another example. I uh, I remember uh, I remember in youth group one time, not at this church, but another church in youth group one time. I'm talking to this young kid and asking him what he wants to do with his life, and uh, I want to be in music. Music? That's that's great. What do you want? Do you sing? No. Do you play an instrument? No. Um, okay. Uh, if you don't sing and play an instrument, I guess you could rap. Of course, they didn't rap back then, but. Uh, uh, so, so what, what kind of music do you do? You want to promote a band? Do you do the electronic side? What do you? No, I just really love listening to music. So you love listening to music, and you could teach yourself to sing or play an instrument or something like that. But you want a full time job listening to music. Yeah, that's all I like to do. I just like to sit around and listen to music. And it's not my fault. I'm not. A millionaire. It's not my fault people didn't you know, like what I did. It's just that I'm not willing to put any effort in, yet I have a dream and a desire which will always amount to nothing. Desire without effort equals nothing. We know that in sports. 
We know that with our physical life. We know that with working out. We know that with finances. We know that with starting a business. We know that with every avenue of our life, even in our spiritual life, but for some reason in our spiritual life, it doesn't bother us. It's it's okay. It's no big deal because I expect everything from God to be free. Diligent. Someone who's characterized by care and perseverance about carrying out tasks, like raising your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, like studying yourself approved, like Timmy prayed today about making disciples of all nations, like doing what God has called us to do, to, to understand God's word, to share my faith with somebody, to be, to be known as a, as a growing Christian rather than using our schemata, our one to 10 scale, being satisfied for decades, being less than not what you could be, but what you have been in the past. So we're constantly less than what at one point in time we were, and then we become okay with that. I I, I used to be cold, and I used to be hot too, but I'm not cold anymore. Instead, I'm just kind of in the middle, and because I'm in the middle, kind of lukewarm, I'm okay with that. Nobody is okay with that, maybe except you and the church, but Christ definitely isn't okay with that. Soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, makes total sense. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Rich. It doesn't have anything to do with money. It doesn't talk about the numbers on your 401k. It means to be satisfied. Because for someone who doesn't live in this flesh only, the greatest satisfaction you will ever have in life is to be in the center of God's will. To, to, to know his voice when he speaks, to have a deep relationship with the creator of life, that no one can take that away from you. To be satisfied, literally back then to grow fat, having an abundance, to thrive, to be made prosperous, to be richly supplied. And we in the West interpret all of this to deal with money. Principle applies with money. But the point of this passage isn't about money that passes away. It's about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your spiritual life and not being the kind of person that just limps along and, you know, they make these kind of statements. They think it's humble, but really it's bummish. Oh, I don't really want a whole lot of rewards when I get to heaven because, I mean, i got to throw them at the feet of Jesus anyway. So, like, what's the point of that if I can't keep them? And I, I don't really want a mansion in heaven. I'll be satisfied with this little pup tent in the corner part of heaven, just away from everybody. Oh, what a humble man that I am. Oh, what a lazy person you are. Because the fact is, we should have immense rewards to be able to glorify Christ with. All right, Lord, so... Um, I don't want to be this sluggard guy. I mean, I don't. And I know sometimes in my life I am. So, so what can I know about that? I mean, what can you show me about being a sluggard? And I don't want to go to all these other passages. Lord, let's just keep it right in Proverbs. Let's write in Proverbs. What does just Proverbs have to say about being a sluggard? And I've got on your handout four things. There's more, but just four quick things that we can learn about being a sluggard. And this works not only in the spiritual life, but it also works in the physical life. A sluggard won't begin anything. They can't. 
I'm not going to do that. I've got time for that. I don't want to begin some workout program or I don't want to start some business. I just want somebody to take care of me. As a matter of fact, the sluggard is so tied up in his own self that he doesn't even know how long he'll be that way. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11. I love this passage. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? Answer, I don't know. Uh, it was a rough night last night. Stood up playing video games all day. Talked to my friends in California. And, and just got, and, you know, it's just my time, my day. I just want to sleep, do what I want to do. Just leave me alone here. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? Two questions asked to this person, no answer given. None. Doesn't say because he doesn't know. Because he doesn't know how to begin anything. He doesn't know how to change. He just wants somebody to take care of him. In the, in the present world in which we live, I just want to get my check from the government. And once I get my check from the government, I'm fine. I don't have to worry about anything. I can do what I want to do. And then, of course, there's the counsel. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. You started a Bible study in your home? No, I, I want to do that, but, but I really haven't. Have you been memorizing verses to share on Sunday? Well, I kind of wanted to, but, you know, they're really hard. I don't have time for that. Are you leading your wife in devotions at home? No, you know what? I, no, I, I don't. I'm spending all my time doing the stuff that I want to do. Okay. You having devotions with your kids? Are you bonding together with some men at work to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you saving money to go on a mission trip? Are you doing anything with this faith, guys? No, but uh, maybe someday I will, but, but not right now because a sluggard, a lazy man, someone who's slothful never begins anything. Never. And if by some chance he does, if he stumbles into something and decides, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and start this because I'm guilted into it or it seems the right thing to do, a sluggard will never finish it. They'll never complete. Just beginning took all my energy. Just beginning wiped me out. Look at the verses here from Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 27. Lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting. He just lets it spoil and waste it. But diligence is a man's precious possession. Oh, yeah. It makes you the kind of person someone wants to marry. It makes you the kind of person your kids say, that's my dad. It makes you the kind of person employers want to promote. Proverbs 19, 24. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will so not much as bring it to his mouth again. Gosh, can you imagine? I'm sitting here at the table. I, there's the food. I'm starving. I put my hand in the bowl. and uh, I just can't go that extra step to receive any benefit for what I've done. Proverbs 26.15 tells us why. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. Wow. Have you spent any time in deep devotion with the Lord? Well, no, because last time I did, he told me some things that needed to change. This made me feel uncomfortable. I was under conviction. I didn't want to do that. 
Have you decided that what you want to do is, is make a goal? You have a desire? Have you laid out a plan for you to reach that goal? Well, yeah, I kind of have. But you know, every time I do that, I just run into roadblocks. I run into confrontation. Things just don't go my way. If God wants me to do something, he should just make the, plan, the, the, uh, the way just as clear as it should be, just as smooth as it should be. I didn't sh- should have any conflict at all. Well, do you forget that you have an enemy who wants to destroy you? Number three, a sluggard will not face things. He'll quit. Challenges, hardships, tough times. He'll look for excuses to quit. Oh, I'm just too tired. I can't get it done. You know, I need to take care of me first. Proverbs 22:13. I love this excuse. The lazy man says, I can't do that. I can't go outside. I can't get up. There's a lion outside, and I might be slain in the streets. Yeah, there's always lions in the Middle East in the middle of a town, right? I mean, that's ridiculous, that is. You can make any excuse you want for, for not, uh, not following through. And you can then even begin to believe your own excuses. Proverbs 26, 15, and now we're going to add 16. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, and it wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. This is narcissism 101. I'm always right. I know exactly what I'm doing, and it doesn't really matter what the results are. I always have a, I always have a hard time understanding why people are satisfied for such a horrible existence in just this physical world in which we live in when they could on their own make their life a little bit better. And making your life a little bit better means that maybe you have to go to school. Maybe you have to work harder. Maybe you have to say no to something that drags you away and say yes to something that that means more. Because a sluggard won't begin things or finish things, won't face things, then inevitably, number four, his life is hard and difficult. And it's needlessly so. Here's what it says in Proverbs 15, 19. The way of a lazy man is like a hedge of thorns. No matter where he turns, it's unpleasant because he's boxed himself in and he's become master of his own fate and doesn't do anything to change that physically or spiritually. But the way of the upright is a highway. Now, listen, it doesn't say it's like a path. It doesn't say that it's like a a well-traveled road. It's a highway. I got a lazy man who's hedged in by thorns. Everywhere he goes, he gets stuck. This is crazy. I can't believe I'm continuing going down this path. I need to change. I need things to be different. But he doesn't because he has a God in his mind, either himself or money or something of that nature. And so therefore, God is hedging him in. But the way of the upright It's like an interstate. It's like a highway. It's smooth sailing. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. I guess you just stifle that desire or somehow convince yourself that your life is really good. But the soul of the diligent shall be satisfied, shall be supplied abundantly, shall be made rich. Rich. So you mean to tell me that everything in the Christian life is not free? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is one thing that is free in the Christian life, 
And that is your salvation. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's given to you as a gift. And as part of that salvation, God himself chooses in the person of the Holy Spirit to live in you, which makes you a tabernacle, a temple of God himself. Wherever you go, you have God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Nothing greater than that. You're given all these promises in Scripture that every weapon formed against you will fail, that you have the shield of faith which will extinguish every fiery dart of the enemy. You have this guidebook that lays out for you all the principles you need to live an abundant life in Christ, and most Christians haven't even read it all. Read it all. Everything that you have, you're amply supplied. Colossians 2 says you are complete in him. And from that point on, you have this, when you get saved, you have this bullseye on your chest, and Satan wants you to do everything contrary to the spirit who lives in you. Your flesh wants you to do everything contrary to the spirit that lives in you. Your flesh wants to satis- you to satisfy. Your flesh is lazy. Your flesh is carnal. You've been commanded to yield yourself and surrender your flesh as a living sacrifice, and what you get out of it is a changed mind. But if you don't, Life is a constant conflict. And everything from that point on, sanctification, you're involved with. Uh, what really blew my mind away about 25 years ago is when I realized all the implied you passages in Scripture. Everything after salvation is a you passage. You take your every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You Walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. You uh, pray without ceasing. You uh, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You, 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 you. Well, doesn't he do it for me? No. But he's given himself to you to empower you to do it. God is glorified when you freely choose to follow him and not your own selfish desires. And so is there a cost for a relationship with Christ? Yes. And the cost is always the same. You must die. He must live. You must say no to you and say yes to him. Your way leads to destruction. His way leads to bliss. It's really that's Your way is physical. His way is spiritual. So let me uh, share just a couple of these in closing to you, these uh, requirements for discipleship. Matthew 6, 24. Again, it's on your handout. Jesus said to his his disciples, again, now he's talking to his disciples. He's talking about people that have already committed themselves to him. And here's what he told his disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, a couple things he must do. Not one, he must deny himself. Two, he must take up his cross. And that third one should be three, he must follow me. I deny myself. Wow. I mean, I have to do things I don't want to do. I have to do things that my flesh says no to. I don't gratify me. It's not about me. I must decrease. He he must increase. And how much am I to deny myself? Like death, you take up your cross and then follow me. Okay, parallel passage in Luke, 
Now he's not talking to his disciples, and you might want to read this in the context. The Matthew 16 passage happens right after Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? Oh, you're John the Baptist, Elijah. Who do you say that I am? Christ, the son of the living God. And then he calls Peter Satan. And then right after that, he said, look, dudes. I mean, Jesus didn't actually use that phrase. I would. He said, look, guys, disciples, you want to follow me, Peter? You deny yourself to the point of death. And then follow me. There's a cost involved. I am everything. You are nothing. Because the joy in life comes when I live my life through you. Luke, in verse 9, 23, recounts that, but records something Matthew doesn't. Here's what Luke says. Then he said to them all, this is more than just his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, one, deny himself, two, take up his cross. Is that like a one-time thing at, at salvation? Is it like, you know, a baptism? Once I'm baptized, I'm okay. No, you take up your cross daily. Because the fight in your spirit comes daily. Actually, in my situation between my spirit and my flesh, it's an hourly deal, sometimes a minute deal, daily and follow me. He doesn't say, if you follow me, I will help you do these. He says, if you have a desire to follow me, if you want to follow me, deny yourself to the point of death daily and follow me. I have some questions here about the implications. I ask you to go home and read the context and see if God is not speaking to us something here about a deeper Christian life that maybe we don't want to hear. I leave that to you to study on your own. And then, of course, there's a, a, a final passage in Luke 14 that I want to share with you in closing. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. It says, now great multitudes went with him. All right, so Jesus has his disciples and his multitudes following him. Okay, so the disciples are like those that are really committed to him. The multitudes are what we would call in our culture seekers. Multitude seekers and those that are following him. Then he turned and said to them. There's no reference of disciples here. So the implication is he's speaking to the multitudes. And here's what he says. If anyone comes to me, and the word come means literally to move forward or approach, to come into my proximity, to move from where you are to me. It's not a profound word. Anyone who comes to me and does not hate. Now, this is a really interesting word. The actual meaning of this word is to detest, to think ill of, to have a persecuting spirit. But when you compare this passage with Matthew 10, 37, and I suggest you do that on your own, you'll find that here it really means to love less than. If anyone comes to me and does not love less or hate his father or mother, oh, that's painful, wife and children cannot imagine that, brothers or sisters, yes, even his own life. Wow, talk about denying yourself. I love Christ more than every relationship I have in life, depending on where on the continuum of your life you are. If I'm a child, more than my mother and father. If I'm married, more than my wife, more than my husband, more than my children. And if, in, in general, more than even me. 
If you don't do that, you cannot be my disciple. From a multitude to a disciple, there's a requirement. And the word cannot means just that. Not capable, not able, without power. In other words, it will not happen under any circumstances, no matter how hard you try, no matter what kind of mental gymnastics you try to make, that, hey, it's okay, it's not. It's not going to happen. So what are you saying? I'm saying that you must die. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot, same word, be my disciple. So, so I'm already saved because you did all that work. And now I have a choice of being a casual Christian or a real Christian or a committed Christian. I have a choice of living an abundant life or a, an overcoming life or a struggling life. I have a choice of being hot in Revelation chapter 3 for the Lord or lukewarm, which even makes Christ want to vomit. And so I have a choice of how am I going to live out this life with Christ in the years that you've given me. At 27, I really didn't care as much. At 67, with perspective, everything that I placed in front of Christ means nothing now. Nothing now. Everything that seems so important at 27 or 37 is not important at all now. And the stuff that is most important today was the same stuff that was of most importance back then. And had I embraced it and had a desire for Christ like back then, like I see in Scripture, who knows what life would be like now? All of us that are in our 60s and 70s, we're telling all you young people out there, do not follow our mistakes. Make your own, but do not follow our mistakes. The most important thing in life is your relationship with Christ, not how much money you make or the house that you have or how many kids you have or even how perfect your kids are. Someday they'll leave. Someday they'll be gone. And it'll just be you and him again. So understanding that to the multitudes, Jesus gave them a couple examples and a conclusion. You've read these verses before. And it's almost like, you know, you really want to follow me? Then you need to understand what's involved here. We never actually share this with people when we lead them to Christ. We always leave this part out. Here's what he says. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it. The only people who don't have to count the cost when they're building a tower is the government. They'll just print new money. The rest of us can't do it that way. Lest, after he's laid the foundation, runs out of money, he's not able to finish it, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This man came down front of a church, surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, came and told us about this incredible thing that he did, how we need to follow Christ like he followed Christ. It's a year later, and he's living just like he lived before. And they mock him. Or, example two, what king going to war against another king, does not sit down first to consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. All right, well, those are two business and military logical examples everybody can relate to. So Jesus, what's the point? 
What are you trying to tell? Give me a conclusion. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The word forsake is where we get the word. It's a derivative of the word apostatize. It means to abandon, to literally wave and bid farewell to, to renounce. And all means that's that, that password that we've talked about so many times. It means everything in totality without exception. You must be willing to forsake everything that you are to be his disciples, anything owned or possessed. Well, does that mean I have to give it all away to the church and live like a pauper? No, it doesn't say that. Because God may allow you to keep what now belongs to him. You give it to him, and he gives you a house. He gives you an income. He may bless you immensely so you can support other ministries. He may, he may do amazing things in your life with what belongs to him. But as long as you hold on to your life as it belongs to you, nothing happens. You'll have a desire, put in no effort, because we're spending all our effort building our own fortunes, and then end up with nothing, nothing, and still be unsatisfied. Wherever you does not forsake or abandon to renounce, bid farewell to all that he has, cannot be my disciple. This is a really amazing thing about the Lord. He died. I mean, it would have been better if he just got beat up real bad and then, you know, was able to pay for our sins by getting beat up because he'd heal from that, everything would be fine. But he died a horrible death to satisfy God's wrath against you and me. It was all or nothing for Jesus. And when you come to Christ after he lives inside of you, to follow him as a disciple, to grow in him, to trust him, to have faith in him, to watch his life flourish through you is also an all or nothing. We are buried with Christ, dead with Christ, and born again into a new likeness of him. And what Jesus wants us to do is when we're born again, to, if we're in newness in life, then maybe our passions, our desires, our fears, our insecurities, our wants, what makes us happy should change also. Because it says if we're lazy, when it comes to spiritual things, we can desire all we want and have nothing. But the soul of the diligent shall be made rich, satisfied, supplied abundantly. This is the crux of what we talked about, the higher Christian life. This is where you move from wherever you are spiritually to a place of deeper intimacy with him. Not comparing it to someone else, just comparing it to where you have been at one point in time. Which brings me to this sheet. Last one I asked you to set aside. I shared this with you before in 2021. Um, it's called A Prayer Full Surrender. It's from an article written by Dr. Walter Wilson, who was part of the Keswick Movement. Um, uh, and it was a time when uh, God did amazing things through this man. You ever heard of him? Of course not. He didn't preach to millions of people. wasn't popular in the world, but God did some amazing things in his life. And he uh, had surrendered his life to the Lord, and they went to a, a revival meeting, and they were talking about the Holy Spirit. And they were, he basically realized that he had a fear of the Holy Spirit because he didn't want to yield his life to anybody but himself. 
After all, he was a medical doctor, spent many years in medical school, and he wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. And when God convicted him, and he wrote this in his autobiography, when God convicted him, he went home and he prayed to the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, is God himself, and you'll not lose your mind by doing that, no matter what people tell you. Pray to the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And this was his prayer, a prayer of full surrender, a prayer I would encourage you to put in your own words this week and surrender and be diligent about your spiritual life. Here's what he said, my Lord, I have mistreated you all my Christian life. I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called on you. When I was about to engage in some work I wanted to do, I beckoned you to come and help me perform my task. I have kept you in the place of a servant. I have sought you. I have sought to use you only as a willing servant to help me in my self-appointed and chosen work. Line in the sand drawn, I shall do so no more. Just now, this is what Romans 12, 1 talks about. Just now, I give you this body of mine, the seat of my desires. From my head to my feet, I give it to you. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes and lips, my brain, all that I am within and without. I hand it over to you for you to live in it the life that you please. You may blind the eyes or send me with your message to Tibet. You may also take this body to the Eskimos or send it to the hospital with pneumonia. It doesn't matter. It is your body from this moment on. Help yourself to it. It now belongs to you. Thank you, my Lord. I believe that you have accepted it. For in Romans 12, 1, you said, acceptable unto God. Thank you again, my Lord, for taking me. We now belong to each other. I don't know of any other prayer that sums up the way to open the door to a deeper intimacy with the Lord than this one. And I encourage you from the truth here in Proverbs 13, Verse number four, do not be lazy in your spiritual life. Don't be lazy in any part of your life, but especially your spiritual life, but be diligent and trustworthy and put him first and surrender to him. Because if you do, the scripture says, shall be made, which means there's some outside force making that happen. doesn't say he makes himself, shall be made satisfied, endued, richly supplied, thriving in this darkened world. Amen? Let me encourage you to do that this week. Matter of fact, tonight before you go to bed and see what God does in your life this week. Let me pray.